Nick, last time you were on the podcast, you mentioned tongue strikes and Matt said that was going to be the name of his next porn video. And <laughs> now you bring up titration to vibration. Oh, even better. Here you on eight. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. Today, we're going to do something special. This is actually an interview I did with Matt Mendez a couple of years ago, and it's an interesting case he had while doing some event medicine. I wanted to sit down with our friendly tox fellow, Nick Matzler, and listen to this interview and get his pearls on this case. Afterwards, we're going to do a session of paramedic ask the doc a question with Will Berry, and he's going to fire up some questions that came up for him and make Nick dive even further with us into what we're talking about today. But in order to keep this episode from going too long, we're going to provide that Q&A session as a bonus episode that will come out one week from the release of this episode. So make sure to be on the lookout for that, or better yet, subscribe to the podcast so you can be automatically notified about new episodes. Subscribing to the show actually really helps us out a lot as we work to grow and provide better content for you guys. Another way you can really help us continue to provide high-level education content for you is by spreading the word about us. If you find the stuff we do here helpful, then please tell someone else you know about the show who also might find it interesting. All right, we've got a really cool episode for you guys this week, so let's get to it. Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Always good to be here, and thanks for the invite. I love these kinds of topics, so I'm excited to break it down. Great. Let's start listening to the case. Go ahead and set me up. Set the stage. What was, first of all, before the call even started, what was the festival like? So the festival was a lot of young people wearing next to nothing, but what they were wearing were made of flowers and neon and a lot of different face masks. What were you wearing? I was wearing a scrub top with my name on it and cargo pants as a bottom. Cut off? No, I wish. It was like 100 degrees that day. What color was your hair? My hair. Some form of neon, right? Nope. The normal dark brown. Okay, sorry. Back to the festival. Yeah, so there was a, you know, a, lot of, a lot of kids pretty much and there were a lot of tents and there was a main stage and... A lot of different places you could go watch music, a lot of hypersensory and hyperstimulation areas where you could like go, you know, to these like neon forests. There was a silent disco. It was, you know, everything you could imagine for an electronic dance fest. Okay, Nick, Matt just set the scene for us. After hearing what type of event he's at and and what is immediately going on, kind of what's going through your mind about the possible drugs and ingestions we might come across working such an event like this? Yeah, th these sorts of events definitely tend to feature a handful of drugs most commonly. Chief among them, I'd probably say is something called 3,4-methylene-dioxy-methamphetamine, uh, otherwise known as MDMA or Molly or ecstasy. And I say the chemical name not to be overly pedantic, but because I think it is interestingly informative. The, the last part of the name, everybody is an expert in, right? Methamphetamine. In fact, a lot of drugs share a very similar chemical structure, and actually only few atoms separate what is MDMA from regular old meth. And both provoke a very similar response in terms of the types of neurotransmitters that are released. But what really makes them different is the relative amount of these neurotransmitters that are released. So whereas something like meth tends to release a lot of dopamine, norepinephrine, and epi, MDMA releases all those, but also a ton of serotonin, which accounts for its different effects. In addition to Molly, we see things like LSD. Uh, again, there's going to be a lot of neurotransmitters released with this one, but serotonin is a big player and really accounts for a lot of the symptoms that you get. There are certainly several others that tend to be more common as well, but I think it is important to also mention that when we test these drugs from this environment, we also see a lot of fentanyl mixed in. Further, we've also seen a lot of drugs that are similar to fentanyl, but not, and so test strips may still come up negative at these kinds of events, and people unfortunately can still have overdoses of opioids, even when they're not intending to. What time of night are we talking about here? 
Well, the case happened at pr- probably around 8 p.m. Okay, 8 p.m. Where are you hanging out in the dance festival? I'm in the medical tent. So the way it works is the medics pretty much run everything and we're only there as like backup or support. So basically if someone needs to be transported, they don't even talk to us. They just transport them and follow their protocols. If someone's like a clear refusal or like a very clear, like the person didn't actually request medical attention, then they just handle that. But we're there for thing that's in that middle gray area attacked as medical control. So you're hanging out, it's 8 p.m., you're in the medical tent with your cut-off cargo shorts, your <laughs> pink neon hair, just let me have my dreams, and you're you're kind of rocking out, you're dancing. What, what happens? What comes in? Well, actually, the festival was getting closed for weather, so we are like on our way out, packing our bags. They had already kind of cleared the the festival grounds and then they they walked this young like teenage kid up to the to the dance fest and he's like wide-eyed bug-eyed and, and looks like scared to death so let's place ourselves in this tent right now you have a young raver who is walking up to your medical tent bug-eyed and scared not saying much much of tox is recognizing these toxidromes or, or patterns of presentation that come with specific ingestions. Obviously, we need to do more of a physical exam to narrow down the exact toxidrome, but on your initial split-second view of this patient as they're walking up to the tent, Nick, what's starting to formulate in your mind and what is immediately on your differential of what could possibly be going on? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because you really can. You can gain a lot of information just by looking at somebody and seeing how they move and how they walk and how they look around the room. And I actually find that one of the first things that I'm drawn to is the eyes. Part of that has to do with the pupil size because you know we talk a lot about mydriasis or meiosis, that's big pupils and small pupils respectively. And whenever we talk about these topics, we always kind of seem in the background to imply that there's like some magic number to all of this. Like, oh yes, like under two millimeters, that's meiosis uh, or greater than X, that's mydriasis. And really that's not true. Really it is all relative and it's all relative to the lighting in the room. I find that most people are really good at looking at somebody else's eyes and just intuitively knowing, are these pupils bigger than what I would have expected or smaller than what I would have expected? And if they're bigger than what you would expect for the room light, that's my dryasis. And if they're smaller than what you would expect, well, that's meiosis or small pupils. And whenever we see pupils that are abnormally large or small relative to the lighting that is around them, we automatically know that there is either too much or too little neurotransmitter at play, or there's a blockade of neurotransmitter at play. So you already know that something else is at play just by noticing these pupils. And sometimes that can be physiologic, meaning like if you go out for a big workout or exercise, yeah, your pupils are going to be a little bit on the larger side because of all the norepinephrine and epinephrine that you've dumped out during exercise are going to naturally dilate your pupils. So it doesn't necessarily imply that somebody's done drugs for sure, but it really lets you know that something is different about their physiology than somebody who is relaxed, who is just walking around a room. And so I find that that is some instant information that can help you know what kind of toxidrome, what kind of pattern is at play in this patient. And I think just a byproduct of looking somebody in the eye is that you can kind of gauge this idea of, are they looking around the room purposefully? Are they meeting your gaze? Or or do they seem to have that kind of dazed look or that thousand yard stare that, that they're not really able to pay attention to what's in their environment? And I find at the same time, you almost get this idea of their coordination and how they're moving. Just by trying to look somebody in the eyes, I feel like you can get this whole snapshot of what is happening to the person and and even some insight into maybe some of the neurochemical imbalances. The eyes are the window to the soul. What'd the medics tell you? Basically that he was in the bathroom and his friends were really honest and they said, we, we just did drugs and he won't like come out of the bathroom and, and he's like freaking out. What happened prior to him getting to the tent with you? The medics got to the kid. Um, he was ambulatory, so they just kind of they just walked him from the bath. It was it wasn't that far of a walk from the bathroom to the tent, and kind of talked to him on his way over, but didn't really perform that much of an intervention as they normally don't. Nothing really happens till they get to the tent. He walks into the tent. He's walking, talking at this point. Then what happens? They lay him down on one of the cots, and he is like 
tripping and his pupils are like completely dilated and he just keeps saying like oh my god my mom's gonna kill me when she finds out my mom's gonna kill me when she finds out then they take his vital signs and his heart rate's like 170 his blood pressure is 160 over 100 and he is like profusely sweating which we didn't realize that it was sweat because the weather was rain that's what the festival was getting closed for but then you know he was dried off in the tent you could tell that he was diaphoretic because he just kept becoming more more wet so what are you thinking about this point? I was thinking, is this serotonergic syndrome or is this like, you know, neuroleptic malignant syndrome or malignant hyperthermia? Because we didn't really know what he took or what was going on. Matt's just given us his differential of serotonin syndrome, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, malignant hyperthermia. Nick, what things on physical exam brought Matt to this constellation of diseases? And then how do we differentiate these diseases apart from one another? And is there anything else you would still keep on your differential at this point that Matt didn't mention? This is a great differential overall. And I, I think it's worth drilling down and chatting about this a little bit. So I imagine part of what Matt was getting at is the similarities between all these, meaning that there's a component of autonomic dysfunction, meaning there's like hypertension, tachycardia, there's often CNS effects like the confusion, the agitation, the anxiety, and there can be some muscular effects like rigidity and clonus. So if we kind of stop there, then all three of these different syndromes that Matt talked about seem like they could all be very likely for this patient. But let's take a second and kind of examine the two that we don't think are happening in this patient right now, meaning the NMS and the malignant hyperthermia, which seem lower on the list. And let's talk about why they're lower on the list. I think first starting with NMS or neuroleptic malignant syndrome, this is usually actually much more of a gradual process. The type of patient that you see with this is somebody who is on a anti-dopaminergic medication, like an antipsychotic, who's recently been uptitrated on that antipsychotic, or somebody like a Parkinson's patient who chronically takes a medication that replaces dopamine when they suddenly stop taking that medication. So the end effect is you have sort of a relative dearth of dopamine in your brain overall. And when this happens, you actually get this like really nonspecific syndrome that are, are symptoms that happen over a couple of days. Usually people feel just kind of crummy. They might have some difficulty getting up and walking around. They might have some anxiety and this sort of builds over hours to days before it becomes full on NMS. And so for these patients, whenever there's like an abrupt onset of these sorts of symptoms, I often think NMS is lower on my list just because of the abruptness. Now, with something like malignant hyperthermia, I think that's always a good discussion and always something that belongs on a differential, but usually malignant hyperthermia is something that happens in response to taking very specific drugs, usually anesthetics like succinylcholine or anesthetic gases that you might get in an OR. Outside of that, it is true that like stress or heat can bring on malignant hyperthermia, but usually if you are that patient who has the genetic abnormality that is malignant hyperthermia, if it is so sensitive that it's just going to be caused by heat or stress, unfortunately, these are patients that usually are discovered at an extremely young age and unfortunately usually don't survive to adulthood because of how difficult it can be to control this kind of disease. Now, there's certainly patients who have malignant hyperthermia who live to be adults, but those patients usually are only triggered by anesthetics, meaning you gave succinylcholine or they received an anesthetic gas. Outside of those medications, there's really not a lot that will trigger malignant hyperthermia. So again, I totally agree it belongs on the differential, but I think we can move it lower down because we know that this patient was unlikely to be exposed to any of these drugs. I think another thing that's on the differential that Matt touched on is potentially sympathomimetic syndrome. Sympathomimetics are things like methamphetamine or cocaine, things that are going to bring up your heart rate and your blood pressure as well as can make you more excitable. So you can see that agitation and anxiety. And I think those belong on this list as well. Sometimes we can see some neuromuscular changes, meaning that clonus or rigidity to come along with those, but it's oftentimes less likely. So at the end of the day, I really agree with Matt. I think it gave us a great differential and kind of broke it down a little bit. And at the end of the day, I think something like what we're seeing with this patient is best fit by something like serotonin syndrome. So we've kind of narrowed down our differential to maybe the most likely cause of serotonin syndrome. Can you talk about that a little more? 
Yeah, serotonin syndrome is something that was coined several years ago and was something that we saw when these newer generation antidepressants came out, meaning the SSRIs in particular. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter that we know has a lot of play in terms of depression. And we think that by increasing the relative amount of serotonin, that maybe that alleviates some symptoms of depression, anxiety, and a laundry list of other conditions. SSRIs block something called the CERT channel or the serotonin reuptake channel. And by doing that, you end up with a ton of excess serotonin that hangs out in your synapse. When you have all this excess serotonin, it can start to cause a bunch of different symptoms. Think around the 70s, there was a guy named Sturmbach who came up with some criteria that they decided if you met this list of criteria, then you had serotonin syndrome. The problem with that was was twofold. One was that the criteria were very broad, meaning that you could have somebody that had no excess serotonin in their brain and they could still potentially meet that criteria and you'd label them as serotonin syndrome. It also meant that everything was more extreme. So you had to have more extreme features to meet strict criteria of serotonin syndrome. So along came what we call the Hunter criteria. And the Hunter criteria is essentially an amalgamation that is a spectrum. And so what they call it now, as opposed to serotonin syndrome, is they call it serotonin toxicity, meaning Do you have features that are explained by excess of serotonin in your brain? And so we talk about autonomic features like hypertension tachycardia. We talk about the muscle findings like rigidity, clonus, hyperreflexia. And then we also talk about the CNS component like the agitation or the anxiety that you might get, or you might even get worse like more of a coma or CNS depression-like effect. If you have these effects and you've been exposed to a serotonergic medication, then we consider you to have serotonin toxicity. Part of the reason to talk about it as serotonin toxicity as opposed to syndrome is that even patients with signs of mild serotonin toxicity can sometimes necessitate treatment, meaning usually benzodiazepines. And so part of the theory or part of the reason to move towards something like Hunter's criteria, which is more broad and gives it to us more as a spectrum, is so that we don't undertreat patients. Because the worry is, is that, well, if a patient is not meeting strict criteria for serotonin syndrome, they might still require benzodiazepines. And if we withhold them, they may progress and get worse and worse and worse. And so we now like to think of it more as the spectrum so that we encourage people to treat when they see signs of excess serotonin and not wait until a patient is very, very sick to break out the benzos. I walked over to his foot and I pushed his foot up. So like, you know dorsiflexed it and it just kept going back and forth, shaking back and forth without really stopping for at least a minute, which as you know, is called ankle clonus. Nick, talk to us about this very specific exam finding that Matt just mentioned here. Clonus is a toxicologist's best friend. We love to check for clonus all the time. There's never a patient that I that I don't get to check clonus on, at least when I'm seeing them as a consult. But clonus comes from an exaggeration of your normal reflexes. To get way too deep into it, most of your serotonin comes from what we call the median raphe nucleus, which is in your brainstem. And that nucleus extends higher up into your brain and control things like wakefulness or temperature regulation, but it also extends down into your spinal cord where it can almost regulate reflexes and muscle firing. And so what happens is that normally when you jerk up on somebody's ankle, it's very similar to like, oh, I'm tapping on their knee for the patella reflex. That jerk downwards that is in counter to your movement upward or your dorsiflexion of the foot, that is what we call clonus. When you have excess serotonin, you exaggerate this pathway. When you push the foot into dorsiflexion, you will get the response of the foot pushing opposite against you, but that sort of response just doesn't extinguish. It doesn't stop. It's not like a normal reflex is where sure you'll, you know, if you tap your knee, you'll kick out. This is like that reflex just keeps going. And so when you hold the foot, that's why it just 
beats against you. We call that sustained clonus. And what Matt is describing sounds like sustained clonus, where the foot just continues to beat against your hand. Now, the only caveat with this is it actually can be normal to have a couple beats of clonus. Especially in younger people, it is not unusual to see two to three beats of clonus. And so in general, we would consider a couple of beats of clonus as potentially normal. I mean, it could be a sign of serotonin toxicity, but more often, just a couple beats of clonus is just probably normal for that person. But when we start getting beyond three beats of clonus, that is abnormal. And that's when I would say this, this is only in response to a pathologic state. So the sustained continues to beat against your hand is abnormal. Exactly. And it may not be that extreme. Sometimes we see it as eight to 10 beats of clonus, but it's going to be very easy for you to count more than three whenever there's pathologic clonus. If it just beats a couple of times, you can say, ah, it may be due to serotonin, but less likely. But if it beats against your hand, you know, at least six, seven, eight times, that is pathologic for sure. And if it's sustained, definitely. So at this point, you think he's kind of experiencing some sort of drug toxidrome, and we're trying to figure out exactly which drug it was and what's driving it and how we're going to treat him. Is there something in his physical exam and his history that kind of led you towards one toxidrome over the other? Like, why wasn't this a sympathomimetic toxidrome? Why do you think it was potentially something else? Well, it was, it was made pretty easy by the friends telling us that the drugs they did in the bathroom were both LSD and ecstasy. And then when the medic searched the patient's pockets, he had both LSD and ecstasy in his pockets. Ecstasy, something that is commonly known to cause a serotonergic syndrome. Exactly. This is a really great point to talk to about the history because what Matt got and what those medics got on scene was this beautiful history of here are the drugs this patient took and we found out from his friends. So even if he didn't happen to have them on the patient, then at least we would have some starting point to figure out what's going on with this patient. And so this is always important to try to get the best history you can, even in these tough situations. Good history leads you down the right path because a lot of these taxidromes can overlap. We think he's having a serotonergic syndrome. What do we know about serotonergic syndromes? They can lead to seizure coma death. Perfect. Great combination. What's our plan to treat this guy? Let me back up though, because his exam was really interesting. He had what's called ocular clonus, which is different than nystagmus. You really just have to go on YouTube and look it up, but the eyes beat in this like slow way that's different than nystagmus. And then he had infinite clonus of any of the extremities. So if you asked him to shake your hand and you once you pulled your hand away, he would still be like shaking. And then he was starting to progress towards just straight up rigidity where he was stiff. He's tachycardic, tachypnic, hypertensive, diaphoretic. And then his jaw had clonus, like he had clonus of the jaw. When he would be done talking, it would almost look like he was shivering. But I think once you see it, like you'll know the difference. It's not the same as shivering. Nick, I think this is a good point to just quickly review what we should be looking for on our, our standard toxicology physical exam when evaluating these types of patients. And also what the heck with the clonus everywhere? We talked about ankle clonus, but this is impressive. I agree. It's very impressive. Clonus is really interesting because you can see it in any part of the body in serotonin syndrome, specifically the lower extremities are much more commonly involved. That's why whenever we talk about clonus, we often think of the ankle first and we go straight to the ankle to test it because that's going to be your biggest bang for your buck. If it's present anywhere, it's going to be in the lowers. But when you get to a severe enough state of serotonin toxicity, absolutely, you can get clonus in pretty much any muscle in your body. It's also not uncommon with these patients to see them almost be vibrating in the bed. It's almost like this very fine seizure-like activity. It's not a seizure, but it's just because the muscles are essentially prepared perpetually contracting and twitching. And so it produces this very odd effect that I think Matt very eloquently broke down in terms of the different types of sustained clonus that he saw. Overall, this brings up the physical exam and how important it is in helping us rule in or out certain toxidromes. Certainly, rigidity, reflexes, clonus, these are all insanely important to a tox-specific physical exam because it really helps us differentiate between different syndromes that might have similar vitals. 
The vital signs are also important because obviously hypertension and tachycardia versus bradycardia and hypotension are important to help us decide which direction we think something's going. The other things that I add to like my tox specific exam are going to be the mental status and kind of the quality of the mental status. Are they like stuporous? They're unable to answer questions or form sentences, or do they just seem altered? They can talk to me normally, but they're not answering appropriately. So that can often help us one direction or another. The pupils, like we talked about earlier, I think are a really big part of my exam overall to help me decide a direction or not. And then the skin actually, in terms of like, are is the patient diaphoretic or are they very, very dry? Both of these can help us distinguish certain tox drums from one another. So at the end of the day, from a pure tox perspective, I think the most important physical exam findings are vitals, mental status, pupils, the skin and then muscular findings like rigidity, reflexes, and clonus. And of course, this is in concert with all the rest of the physical exam that we normally do on these patients. One of the first episodes we ever recorded was on toxidrome. So go back and take a listen to that to hear about what all of these physical exam findings may mean for the different toxidromes. But Nick, I wanted to just bring out one aspect of that exam that I feel like we don't focus on very much pre-hospitally or or hell, I, I don't focus on very much myself in the hospital. And that is that is the rigidity and the reflexes. Talk to me about why those are important in a talk-specific exam and what they may mean for different patients. Yeah, that's a really, really good question because of course it always comes down to, well, what is this actually doing for us from a physical exam? Is it ruling something in or out? Is it changing what we're going to do for the patient? And in the case of toxicology, the reflexes and sort of the rigidity help us start dividing into these other toxidromes. With rigidity, that is when we're starting to talk more of serotonin toxicity. We're talking about NMS or malignant hyperthermia like we kind of broke down earlier. And it helps us shy away from other syndromes that might be similar. So sympathomimetic overdose, like with methamphetamine and cocaine, they can present with some of these muscular findings, but it's much more rare or much more uncommon. And so it really helps us say, okay, even though the vital signs are similar to good old fashioned meth, it's probably not just based on the rest of the things we're seeing. Similarly, an anticholinergic toxidrome that can produce tachycardia, patients can become hot and dry. You know, those also rarely have these muscular findings. So it really does help us differentiate what we think is going on. The other thing it can do is twofold. One is inform us as to how our treatments are going, but also help us know what the patient's at risk for. So if I see a lot of rip-roaring clonus that's sustained or this spontaneous clonus that Matt talks about where he, you know, he talks and then his jaw just starts vibrating, that is like, we're not doing anything to provoke it. It's just purely spontaneous. When I see that, I know a patient's in trouble and they need a lot of benzodiazepines to help them. And then as I watch the patient progress, as we're starting to get them medicated, we're starting to get more and more benzos on board. I can almost use it as a marker of how successful I'm being. Is the clonus and rigidity getting better? The other side of that coin is what is this patient at risk for? The more muscle movement and rigidity we see, the more the patient is at risk for hyperthermia. And hyperthermia is actually what kills these patients. If I'm seeing a lot of rigidity, I'm very closely monitoring these temperatures to make sure that the patient is not sneakily becoming hyperthermic. And if the patient is becoming hyperthermic, then I become much more aggressive in terms of the types of interventions I'm doing. So the physical exam and these findings specifically can really help us differentiate toxidromes, but also inform our treatment as well as what the patient might be at risk for. That's an important point too, because when we talk about serotonin syndrome, we kind of grade it in severity. And one of the classifications of the severity of it is clonus. And is the clonus inducible versus is the clonus spontaneous? And it sounds like what you're describing to me is he was having some component of just spontaneous clonus, meaning you didn't actually have to dorsiflex his ankle for him to experience some clonus either in his ankle or you're describing it in his arm and his jaw. It was kind of just happening on its own without you doing anything. Yeah, I would say it was spontaneous and infinite. Nick, Matt and I just briefly touched on the severity classifications, and you you kind of touched on this earlier of serotonin toxicity. Could you just break down this more for our listeners so they can understand the range and severity of serotonin syndrome slash toxicity? And then practically, does this matter for us in the field? Or in other words, what severity signs and symptoms should we pay attention to in the pre-hospital setting? 
That is a really great question because like we were touching on earlier, it really exists now, or at least the way we conceptualize it now is more of this spectrum of serotonin toxicity. And so you can see patients who have sort of mild serotonin toxicity where their mental status may be more or less intact and they may just have a little tachycardia or hypertension or maybe just a little bit extra clonus, but that can range all the way up just like you guys were talking about to this sort of spontaneous level of clonus. And when we start seeing these more wild findings like the spontaneous clonus or the persistent clonus, even if you induce it in the ankle, it just keeps going and going and going and going. What really perks me up about these patients is what they're at risk for. And what I mean by that is that what is actually going to kill the patient is the hyperthermia like we were talking about earlier. In patients that have the spontaneous closeness or they have inducible clonus that is just persistent, those are the patients that I really worry are going to become more hyperthermic. That is a trigger to me to treat more aggressively with benzodiazepines. The spectrum I think is important to keep in mind just because you might see a patient progress through it depending on what stage you get to them. So if you are picking up a patient who has very recently overdosed on serotonergic medications, either intentionally or accidentally, you might be catching them in sort of the more mild serotonin toxicity form. And when it's more mild, these patients may not look super sick right now, but they may start progressing. So you need to be very careful during your transport while you're watching these people. And if they start developing some of these worsening signs and symptoms, meaning worsening vital signs in terms of hypertension, tachycardia, as well as more persistent clonus or now moving into spontaneous clonus, this is when you really need to start being aggressive with what you're treating. Before we get into kind of how we treat this, Matt talked about being concerned about seizure, coma, death as what we worry about with the in common pathway of serotonin syndrome. Nick, can you more eloquently break down for us why these things happen and expand why serotonin syndrome or toxicity can be such a deadly disease? It's twofold. It goes back to kind of the quick breakdown we gave over how serotonin causes clonus, but really there's a part of your brain that's producing serotonin. It's important for normal things like thermal regulation in your brain, as well as alertness and wakefulness. And it's also important in terms of regulating your muscle response. And so when you have way too much serotonin on board, what's going to happen is one, it's going to alter your mentation. So you can become anxious, agitated. You could also become more uptunded. So more like CNS depressed, but it's also going to dysregulate your temperature. So you're going to see maybe even just from a CNS perspective, a temperature increase. So even though the muscles aren't necessarily doing much, maybe your temperature set point goes up anyway. Serotonin is also very intimately connected with norepinephrine in terms of their release. And so oftentimes what you're going to see is things that you would expect with increased norepinephrine as well. So things like the hypertension and the tachycardia. And then because serotonin also has its effects on the muscles, that's what's creating that clonus, that rigidity. And so you put these things together and you have now a patient who in the brain, their hypothalamus is saying, I'm going to set my set point higher. So you have a a temperature that's rising just from a CNS side of things. But then at the same time, you're setting up the muscles to work harder, to have this clonus, this rigidity. And so you're generating a ton of heat just from the muscle movements itself. And so you put those two things together and you end up with a patient who is a great setup to become extremely hyperthermic, which is of course what I keep harping on because that's what kills people. So serotonin syndrome, we're worried about seizure, coma, death. How are we going to prevent those things from happening? What was going through your head? The medics started an IV pretty quickly, and their protocol is to give 2.5 of Versed IV for any type of agitated delirium if they choose to go down the benzodiazepine protocol. But since we're there and we're in the tent, we act as medical control. We said just go straight to five, and why don't you go ahead and pull up another five milligrams of midazolam or Versed. Nick, what do you think about this treatment plan? Right drug? What do you think about the dose they decided to start with? Yeah, absolutely. Benzodiazepines are the mainstay of treatment for serotonin syndrome and the things that mimic serotonin syndrome. So even if you're slightly wrong in terms of the diagnosis, benzos are the mainstay and what you should be reaching for. And I completely agree. This is the kind of patient where you need to be more aggressive up front to get ahead of what's about to happen to this patient overall. Benzos is a great choice. Giving more is a great choice. All right. We're in the medical tent. We're giving him benzodiazepines, which we feel like are going to treat the underlying cause of his serotonin syndrome and try to prevent it. 
where are we headed? Are we just going to hang out in the tent and fix this guy in the tent? No, we uh, immediately called for transport and they were staged a little far away, but they were on their way once we got IVs and gave her said and yeah, we're just kind of waiting for them at that point. Okay. So transport arrives and then what? We had, we had restrained him to the stretcher, uh, not because he was combative, but because he like was starting to get anxious and we were worried that he would pull his IV. But the transporting agency made the assessment that they were going to try and give it a shot without restraints. But otherwise, they just put him on the stretcher, loaded him up, and they drove like five feet and then they parked. And then they did the classic thing where the driver jumps out and runs around in the back and opens the doors to help. And Never was a good sign. Never a good sign. I've been that driver running around to the back. I've been that medic in the back of the ambulance <laughs> screaming for my driver to stop and get out and help. Me. <laughs> so we, we all saw that. We all like the kind of the medical tent. Since there's nothing else going on, we all walked over there to see if they needed help. And he had pulled his IV and started to get really anxious and like was you know, trying to like stand up off the stretcher. So we got in there, we kind of helped get them back down on the stretcher. They got an IV while we put their restraints back on and he got another five milligrams of Versed right then. So he had a total of 10 at that point, five from us and then five by the transport agency. You making any headway with these doses of benzodiazepines? No, zero. And so that led to the the next thing I I told the transport medic, I said, you should, between now and the emergency room, give this guy all of the Versed that you have on your ambulance. How comfortable was he with that order? He gave me a look like, uh, no way. Like that, that, you know, there's no way I'm doing that. That sounds crazy. And then, which is probably, you know. Yeah, I don't don't know that I'd feel comfortable with that. I think think he had the right reaction to that scenario. So I was basically like, all right, I'm just going to ride in with you if you're cool with that, man. This way we can give as much midazolam as we want and, you know, you can feel safe doing it. Nick, maybe at this point, just talk to us about the goal of benzodiazepines as a treatment therapy and serotonin toxicity and, and why sometimes these patients need such high doses. That's a great question. And really there's a, a sort of a dangerous old adage that sometimes gets cited with this, which is treat overdose with overdose. And so that that can get you into trouble sometimes. But for a lot of these conditions like serotonin syndrome, really what we mean by that is that it is likely going to take substantially beyond what you would consider a reasonable dose of a benzodiazepine in order to treat this patient simply because they don't have the normal physiology that you're used to treating. You're used to two and a half or five of her said of making a very big impact in a patient. Whereas somebody like this that has the imbalance in their neurotransmitters, five of her said may do nothing. I don't disagree with starting with five because I think there is always more you can give and you can always go bigger. But with these sorts of patients, I like to sit there and say, give them a dose, give them a few minutes, see what happens. If they're not responding like you would hope they would, you give more and you just keep giving more, more, more until you titrate to effect, so to speak. And really what we're looking for in this situation is twofold. One is obviously with a patient that's very agitated that you need to get good control over, the benzodiazepines can help you from that perspective to get the patient more comfortable where you feel safe in the back of the ambulance with them so they're not ripping out their own IVs. And then there's the hyperthermia angle. Oftentimes, if patients are becoming hyperthermic, the amount of benzos you need to give them overwhelm their airway and their CNS. So we're talking about patients that you have snowed to the point where you need to tube them or breathe for them on the rest of the ride to the ambulance, and they still need more benzodiazepine. And that is because of the hyperthermia component to everything. And so if you have the ability on your rig to check a temperature, even better, a core temperature, which I know may not be possible, but if you have the ability to do it and they're hyperthermic, you need to be giving more benzodiazepines even if you snowed them. And I think that's one of the difficult things because oftentimes you think, okay, I fixed the agitation. The patient must be better. I have better control over them. I feel safer in the ambulance, but that patient may still not be safe. Their temperature may be dangerously high. And so if you have the ability to check, you should check and then treat accordingly. If you don't have the ability to check or they're normal thermic, then you can just keep going until you make it to the hospital and then make a decision from there. Yeah, one of the biggest things that stuck with me from our initial toxidrome episode was the number one predictor of mortality in these patients is temperature. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Why are we giving so many benzos? 
essentially there's receptors in your brain called GABA and there's glutamic acid and all these science things happen that hopefully somebody smarter than me will explain. Nick, do you want to explain the receptors in the brain? It's interesting because benzodiazepines are a very common medication that we give all the time. And what's actually happening in the brain is there's something called a GABA channel. And benzodiazepines bind to that GABA channel and they make that channel more likely to open. Now, when a neuron will release neurotransmitter, usually that is in response to an electrical stimulus. So an electrical stimulus moves down the nerve, it gets to the end of the nerve, and by depolarizing that nerve, it says, okay, fire this neuron, release all your neurotransmitter. Essentially, what the GABA channel does is it makes it much more difficult for that neuron to actually fire. So when you give GABAergic medication, so things like benzodiazepines, for example, what you're doing is you're slowing everything down. You're putting the brakes on everything. You're saying, okay, every neuron in your brain dump out less neurotransmitter, and that's what slows everything down. Now, a very common GABAergic medication that we're all very familiar with is alcohol, right? Alcohol binds to the GABA receptor, and when it binds to the GABA receptor, it does exactly what benzodiazepines do, which is it slows everything down. It makes it less likely that you're going to be able to release neurotransmitter. And that's why when you drink way too much alcohol, you end up with this state where it's difficult to walk, it's difficult to talk. And that's because your neurons literally cannot fire at a fast enough rate to keep up with what you're trying to do overall. Using benzodiazepines is a way for us to artificially put the brakes on physiology that's happening within the patient. In the states like, you know, methamphetamine or cocaine or serotonin syndrome or any of these things that are going to cause the release of a ton of neurotransmitters, and that's what's eventually going to cause the symptoms. If we put the brakes on that, if we make it so these neurons are harder to fire so that they don't dump out as much neurotransmitter, then that overall can improve the physiology that we see. So benzodiazepines slow everything down by just making it harder for neurons to fire, and especially in these kinds of pathologies, can overall end up improving a patient i don't regret asking you that question (laughs) (laughs) but you're essentially trying to maintain normal thermia in other words normal body temperature by giving high dose benzodiazepines to stimulate those receptors and and calm the patient down the most common cause of fatality within serotonin syndrome, at least reported in the literature, is hyperthermia. Why are our patients so hyperthermic when they have serotonin syndrome? I mean, the main reason is that all of that rigidity and shaking, or in other words, clonus, uh, is, you know, like sh- shivering and is meant to increase your body temperature. That stuff rapidly increases your body temperature. They're essentially just in a hypermetabolic state. So in order to fix that, you want to shut down their metabolism, hence the benzodiazepines. We're going to the hospital. We're giving as much benzos as possible. Anything else in the transport notable worth talking about? Yeah. So we ended up giving, so it's probably a seven minute transport all told. And we gave 20 milligrams of midazolam in that time. And so we had a total of 30 by the time we got to the hospital. Was there anything left on the bus no. when you got there? <laughs> no. And so the entire transport, I was essentially holding the kid's IV in place because he was so diaphoretic that the tegaderm and tape wouldn't stay on him. The medic would just pull up five of Versed into a syringe, push it, and then rinse and repeat that. And I just kept holding the kid's arm and IV in place with my hand. We actually have a still currently practicing paramedic Will Berry, who's here listening to us as we talk about this. So I'm going to bring him in now. Will, Matt just mentioned a difficulty, you know, keeping this IV in place due to the amount of diaphoresis going on. Do you have any tips or tricks from the field for securing this IV when someone is so wet or diaphoretic, you just can't get that tape to stick? Yeah, there's several things you can try. Though this may on the surface seem minor when you're either alone or there's just two people in the back of the ambulance, this becomes a problem pretty quickly because it becomes someone's job and that's your only route to maintain control or treat the patient. To put it simply, if the tape won't stick to the skin, stick it to other things. And what I mean by that is the tape will still stick to itself and it'll still stick to the IV tubing. So one thing I've done before is you actually 
put the tape on the tubing close to where it's meeting the IV catheter and pinch it so that it's like wrapped basically circumferentially around the tubing, but it's stuck back to itself. And then you can basically wrap the tape circumferentially around the extremity. That's not, you know, a on-label way to secure an IV, but in that situation, that might be the best thing you can do. Now, that's the quick down and dirty way when you already have the roll of transport tape in your hand. Some other things I've done that can be helpful is if you take a 4x4 gauze and you remove the perspiration so aggressively that you actually cause a small abrasion, you can sometimes get it to stick to that skin now better. That's not a great way to do it because you're, you know, hurting the patient a little bit, but arguably less than if they die of hyperthermia. And then some other things, you can always try splinting the extremity just like you would in a kid or wrapping it with Coban, wrapping it with, with Curlex on top of everything else you've done. And the system I just worked in, we never had. Coban. Well, I take that back. We had one roll of it and it was tucked away. So that just wasn't really a thing. So you just got good at using transport tape for most everything. And the entire time he just got worse. He never got, we were so behind. He just kept getting worse. He became more tachycardia. He was like 175 when we got to the hospital. His blood pressure was 180 over 120. He was breathing like 40 to 50 times a minute. And he had progressed from all those clonus like signs that I was talking about earlier to just straight up what looked like disturbed posturing and a gaze deviation. So it was essentially my interpretation of that was he was seizing at that point. It's the beginning of what you were saying before with the seizure coma death. Exactly. Nick, why is this happening? Why does this patient continue to get worse despite their treatments? What would you do in this situation? This really sounds like a patient that is just getting very far down the teleological pathway of serotonin syndrome. And we just have so much catching up to do that even though we've given these heroic doses of benzodiazepines, we just quite haven't seen the effect we want. But I do agree, this is a really great point to have like that thoughtful pause and say, am I treating what I think I'm treating? So is there something else going on in this patient that accounts for all these signs and symptoms that is different than serotonin syndrome and may have a different treatment? I think it's always a great opportunity to not anchor and to sit there and say, is my differential right? Am I treating the right thing overall? At the end of the day, though, from a pure tox perspective, one of the really nice things is all the syndromes, essentially, that are similar to serotonin syndrome that you might mistake, that I might mistake for serotonin syndrome because they're so similar sometimes in appearance. The great news is, is that you're always going to treat these the same. You're going to treat them with benzodiazepines hard up front. Even if this was caused by a different pathological condition that is not related to tox at all, I would still argue that the constellation of this severe autonomic disturbances with the hypertension tachycardia, the what looks like now seizure, the muscle rigidity, even if that was caused by something else, high dose benzos is what you're going to want to use. Have the thoughtful pause, but this is probably somebody that we just started so far behind. They have so much serotonin that's already being dumped out, continue to being dumped out, that even though we're giving these escalating dose of benzos, we just haven't come close yet. And we honestly probably just need more. It also goes to show you, it sounded like in this case that the patient presented approximately 30 minutes after ingestion. That's pretty quick time after they ingested a drug. And they were already showing signs of that spontaneous infinite clonus that short after they ingested it. And so in, in that short of an ingestion, you maybe would just consider it to progressively get worse from there. Am I thinking about that right? Absolutely. I, I think that's very clever. I, I think it, exactly as you say, it tells us kind of two things. One is that this patient was more likely predisposed to having this condition. So maybe they're on an SSRI baseline. And then when they had this ecstasy on top of it, that's what pushed them over the edge. And that's why they responded so aggressively to the ecstasy so quickly. But just as you said, I think the other thing it informs us about is just what the natural history of this patient is going to be. Meaning that we likely are going to see this patient get way worse because is all that drug absorbed orally in the first 30 minutes? Probably not. There's probably a lot left in the gut that is yet to be absorbed that's still going to cause problems. And so that's exactly the same way I'm thinking about it. 
we parked in the ambulance bay. I jumped out while the two medics that were on the bus got him packaged and got the stretcher out. And I went into the, at our hospital, he goes to the pediatric side. I went into the pediatric side and I knew the attending. And I told him, you know, we have a, a kid here who needs to be intubated right now. How did they respond? They set up the intubation equipment and pharmacy was there to help with medications and they essentially moved the kid over and proceeded with intubation. What's the goal of intubation here, Nick? This goes back to sort of what we were talking about earlier, which is what are we treating with the benzodiazepines and what do we need to do to get control over this patient? A patient like this, who is so sick, but CNS altered, again, we're not just titrating the benzos to the agitation. We're actually titrating to the thermal generation. In somebody like this, the airway can actually allow us to give much higher doses of benzos despite the patient being so altered. The other thing it allows us to do is to use a paralytic because like we were talking about earlier, yes, there certainly is a contribution of the serotonin causing direct stimulation in your brain to increase your temperature, but it's a huge amount of the thermogeneration is from the muscles. All that rigidity, all that activation of the muscles are generating all this heat. And so if we can stop the muscles from generating this heat, hopefully the patient will become cold again or, or just normal thermic again. Paralytics will help us take the muscles out completely. So the intubation really allows us to keep going with what I would consider the definitive treatment, which is the benzodiazepines, but it also allows us to give something like a paralytic to stop the majority of the thermogeneration. Any thoughts on how to actually perform the intubation itself? From a tox perspective, when you're doing an intubation, most often rock is going to be the safest paralytic you can use from a tox perspective. And the reason for that is succinylcholine has some downsides. Obviously, the short half-life is brilliant, especially when you're working with it in the field. But when you're talking about a patient that you don't know what their electrolytes look like, especially in the setting of a toxic overdose, and then somebody who we don't know anything else about their medical history, I actually think rocuronium is a much safer paralytic overall, even though it's going to cause that paralysis to last a little bit longer. So from a paralytic perspective, I think rock is safer from most tox patients. When we talk about the induction medications, you can probably use most anything that is common to you, meaning that if you want to use something like ketamine, that's probably fine, even though it will cause some release of serotonin. But if you have Atomidate, Atomidate would be a really great choice in a patient like this overall. One of the things that you want to be cautious about is using some of your opioids because opioids in general can be serotonergic and unfortunately fentanyl is chief among them in terms of being a serotonergic medication. Fentanyl actually will increase the amount of serotonin in the brain when somebody already has a very severe serotonin syndrome. Every amount you can save is going to be better and so if you can spare something like fentanyl, I would not use it in these situations. To summarize that, it sounds like rocuronium in these cases better than sucks just because you're not going to get that fasciculations that's going to increase your thermoregulation. So that's your paralytic. So with regards to your induction agent, etomidate may be preferred because that's going to have the least serotonin release, whereas ketamine may have a little bit, but certainly something like fentanyl or other opioids may have a lot more serotonin release, which is your, your primary problem here that we're trying to avoid. How'd that intubation go? What'd they choose for paralytics, for medications, for sedation? The the attending gave pain medicine. So he gave, I think it was fentanyl or hydromorphone IV, you know, which is kind of an old school move to give pain meds with your RSI. Do you know why he decided to go that route? No, I don't. It sounded like, at least in hearing this case secondhand later on, that maybe he was concerned with the amount of benzos that you had given, that maybe he had been adequately sedated from a benzodiazepine standpoint, that maybe going with the hydromorphone would be a good adjunct uh, with the amount of benzos he had already gotten. Nick, what do you think about that approach? You know, I never like to Monday morning quarterback anybody in the emergency department because it always depends on what you see in front of you and whatever you think is best for the patient at that time, I think is a good move. So especially in the pre-hospital setting or even in the emergency department, I think you deal with the best information you can. I think that using opioids in this scenario 
specifically if the reasoning is, you know, they sort of had enough benzodiazepines, that is when I start saying, well, really it's kind of misappropriating what the benzos are there for. Absolutely. The benzos are there to help with the mental status and to get control of the agitation. Totally agree with at this point, you've sort of gotten control of that, but there really is no maximum dose of benzodiazepines. And especially in these patients, we've seen wild doses required in order to control the autonomic dysfunction. So the tachycardia, the hypertension and the hyperthermia that happens with these folks. Usually what I say is that when people are worried, hey, I think we've given enough benzos because they're pretty snowed, I say, absolutely, you've, we've gotten control of the agitation and everything else with the benzos. Now what we're using these escalating doses for is actually to get control of these vital signs. So in this exact scenario, with all the extra information provided by Matt, I probably would have said, if we need something for mental status, let's use Atomidate. Let's keep going with the benzos, start them on a benzo drip, and then go from there. Just as we talked about earlier, because fentanyl can dump out some increased serotonin, it's probably a less than an ideal choice in this exact scenario. Yeah, and I, th I, I think everyone in hindsight probably would have just have done more benzos as part of the induction. And then they paralyzed with rocuronium, and then they gave Kepra either right before induction or right after induction. Why the Kepra? You don't have to do Kepra because this case hits you over the head and is right in your face that it's, you know, serotonin syndrome. The kid had two serotonergic agents in his pocket. He told you he did two serotonergic agents and he had every single classic sign of serotonin syndrome. But in the ED, we are creatures of habit and we do things the way that we always do things. If you're the attending and the resident team in the pediatric ED and a young kid comes in seizing who needs his airway taken because of seizures, that status of epilepticus and Kepra is after an adequate amount of benzos is considered a second line agent. So I think they were just kind of going through that algorithm and doing what we always do. Nick, this patient came in super sick and now with maybe even seizure-like activity and the the emergency department team decided to give a medication, an anti-seizure medication called levetiracetam or Kepra. What are your thoughts on this in this patient? I totally agree with Matt overall. Usually the really nice thing about most tox-induced seizures is they're very, very short-lived, meaning that usually by the time you've drawn up a benzodiazepine to even treat primarily a tox seizure, it's usually self-terminated and it's done. Now, there's, a, of course, some exceptions to that, but usually in serotonin syndrome, the seizures you see are are pretty short-lived overall and usually very benzo-responsive. But I, I agree with Matt. I, I also don't think it's a bad thing. I think if you know Slam Dunk, as he was pointing out, that this is serotonin syndrome, I think you could get away with just the benzos alone. I think if you're worried that there's something else on your differential, I think using something like the Kepra is not unreasonable in this case. How'd the intubation go? One of our second year residents did it on one attempt and it was pretty smooth. After the intubation, what was kind of discussed the further management prior to admission to the hospital? So after the intubation, he was immediately placed on a midazolam, aka Versed drip, as well as a propofol drip. And then, you know, we they drew labs, they, they got him undressed, uh, and then they admitted him to the pediatric ICU and got a toxicology consult. They, I can't remember if they started physical cooling in the ED, but- uh, I think they they did. I think there was a report they put ice packs on before going up. Right. And then I think they started kind of more external cooling measures with blankets upstairs. Nick, talk to us about cooling. Why cool? How do we cool? Is this something we should even consider doing in the field? I think this is one of the most important questions because as we've sort of talked about at a few points during this episode so far is just how much the hyperthermia impacts how the patient's going to do hyperthermia is the big, bad, scary part of some of these syndromes. And this is what's ultimately going to lead to morbidity and mortality. So death and long-term disability from the hyperthermia that these patients experience. I think first, it's really important to just recognize if the patient is hyperthermic or not, and that can have to do with exposure or drug or anything else like that. And then I absolutely think getting cooling started early, especially if they're hyperthermic in the field is important. Now, 
What's really interesting is that when I was a resident, I always thought of ice packs to the groin, to the axilla as being like, ah, yes, this is when I want to be aggressive. This is how I get aggressive with cooling is I put these ice packs over these major blood vessels. Of course, I'm going to, you know, get this blood colder faster because I've put it directly over these large areas where blood is transmitting close to the skin. But when we actually look at this in studies, it turns out that ice packs to the groin and axilla don't actually cool as effectively as we sort of had hoped they would. While they do offer some amount of cooling and absolutely anything is better than nothing at this point, it's not actually as good or as aggressive as we can get. What actually is amazing in terms of cooling is evaporative cooling. Evaporative cooling is exactly what your body does naturally when you sweat. So the whole point of sweat, right, is like you get this water in contact with your skin, the air passes over it as the water evaporates, it takes heat with it. And this has been demonstrated in studies to be an amazing way to cool a patient. If we wanted to do evaporative cooling in the emergency department, all we do is get a sheet wet, put it over the patient, and put some fans on them. So this would be easily accomplished in the back of an ambulance because all you have to do is take a bottle of saline or a bottle of water or anything like that, get a sheet wet, and literally put that wet sheet over the patient and then turn some sort of airflow on. So turn the blasters on over the patient, roll down a window if you can, get some air moving across that patient. And that is actually going to cool the patient very aggressively, very quickly. So especially if you're actually seeing this hyperthermia in the field, which you very may well, the best thing you can do is to hit them hard with the benzodiazepines to try to stop the generation of it, and then to also use something like an adjunct, whether it's ice or not. But if you don't have ice, and even if you do have ice, a really good way to go is to get a sheet completely wet, put it on the patient, get some air moving across them. That's a fantastic trick of dumping a liter of saline onto a sheet, covering that sheet in the patient, cranking the AC as a really quick evaporative cooling method. I like that tip a lot, not something that I had heard before. Talk us through how the rest of this patient's hospital course is, is likely going to go. They're intubated now, they're on a benzo drip. How are we going to titrate this drip? And, and when are we going to know to turn it down or even off? What do we do if they continue to worsen despite this benzo drip? There's a couple of things there. So one is if the patient is worsening on the benzo drip itself, then really the answer is, is to treat what is getting worse. So usually what we're talking about is the temperature. The hyperthermia is getting more extreme. In those cases, we can go up on the benzodrip, but we can also use paralytics again. So especially when we have the airway protective, if the paralytic has worn off, we can always give another dose or we can start them on a drip of paralytic, try to stop the thermogeneration. We can also do some of these cooling techniques that we talked about, whether it is using a damp blanket and evaporative cooling, whether it's using like cooling blankets or Arctic suns or these other fancy things we have in the hospital. So we can take care of that aspect. Then when it comes to like, well, what are we going to do to try to get this patient out of the hospital eventually? Unfortunately, a lot of it is time, meaning that we need to wait for the neurotransmitters in the brain to come close to normal. That just means the body needs to metabolize whatever drug was ingested and that the brain needs to slowly have a chance to come back to normal. And oftentimes that happens over the first 24 to 48 hours or so, but sometimes this can last longer and longer. And so often what we do is titration to vibration, meaning that when we start coming down on the benzodiazepine drip, if the patient is still having spontaneous clonus, if they're still vibrating or levitating off the bed, well, then we just go back up on the benzodrip and we say, okay, not time yet. We're not quite there in balance yet. And we can use all those other adjuncts we talked about to keep the patient safe in the meantime. But eventually we're going to be able to wean these benzos down. And as we wean them down, we're going to see a patient that is looking more and more normal off the drip. We're going to let the sedation go completely away. And then we're going to let the patient wake up and see what they look like. Nick, last time you were on the podcast, you mentioned tongue strikes and Matt said that was going to be the name of his next porn video. And now you bring up titration to vibration. Oh, even better, my man. Like, that can be the name of their first single album. <laughs> Toxicology came in to see the kid pretty quickly because it was you know, such a profound case. And what was interesting about the toxicology consult note is that active cooling and all these other things were not 
as important as just benzos, benzos, benzos to maintain normal thermia through the use of benzodiazepines. We talked about the underlying root cause of the hyperthermia being that hypermetabolic state. So you're obviously not going to fix that. You're not going to fix the problem unless you're treating the underlying cause. So I think benzos are the most important thing here. I think I think cooling is still a very important measure, but you can't let that be your sole treatment. You have to fix the underlying cause. So you can't do cooling alone. You have to do it in conjunction with your benzodiazepines and your other measures to shut down that hypermetabolic state. So it's been some time now since you had this case. You've had some time to reflect on it. Any thoughts you'd like to share on the case? Yeah, it was cool. The kid went home two days later, totally fine, which is the the reason you do the job. But I think from an EMS standpoint, what I would encourage is that if you are knowledgeable about your toxicologic emergencies like serotonin syndrome, and you are pretty confident that you have a case of serotonin syndrome, you can call and say, Hey, look, I have a pretty slam dunk case of serotonin syndrome. He's getting worse pretty fast. Can I have standing orders for this transport to give up to 20 to 25 milligrams of IV midazolam or lorazepam, whatever your benzodiazepine is in your drug box? The doc might say no, but if he says yes, that's like a huge impact that you can have on that kid. And I think the fact that he got 30 milligrams of midazolam within, you know, 20 minutes of presenting to the tent and transport being initiated. I like to think that helped and led to a better outcome. And I think medics in a lot of cases can make a big difference if they have just that extra bit of knowledge and and especially in some of these toxicologic disorders. Yeah, this is an amazing case. I mean, serotonin syndrome in and of itself is a fairly rare disease that you're not going to see often. That being said, when you do see it, it's rare. It's going to be this severe, but it is life-threatening. I mean, this, there are famous cases of people not recognizing serotonin syndrome, not recognizing that people are having fevers or having seizures secondary to this toxidrome and not treating it appropriately and people dying because they didn't get adequate treatment. So I think that's exactly right. You got to get on top of the hyperbenabolic state with your benzodiazepines and you got to call into online medical control if you really think this is what's going on and discuss it with them and discuss if more benzodiazepines are appropriate. And if, if you're planning on giving very large doses of benzodiazepines like this, it's highly unlikely that the airway is going to be compromised because the metabolic state is so high that you're not going to shut it down enough to actually compromise the respiratory state. But in the case that you're wrong and you're barking up the wrong tree, you do need to have a plan for that airway if you do compromise their respiratory status. So that's just one thing that I would say is that if you're going to give or if you're going to ask for this high level of benzodiazepines, you got to have a plan for how you're going to manage their airway if things don't go the way you're planning. Nick, any final thoughts about this case? No, I I think this is an amazing example of serotonin syndrome. It's outstanding pre-hospital care. I couldn't have done it better. Don't forget to tune in in one week for the follow-up serotonin syndrome Q&A session with Nick and Will Berry. There's some great stuff in there you're not going to want to miss, including an impromptu conversation about the utility of entitled CO2 in the pre-hospital setting. We'll see you next week.